Instagram, you know, is fun, like all social media, Instagram is fun, and, and it can be a great way to stay in touch, or people often put prayer requests, so that's cool. But I find what often is posted is not the whole story, right? Someone holding a baby, they post that, doesn't actually tell of the years of infertility and miscarriage and, and heartbreak that got them there. You know, we have the best life, yay! Hashtag living my best life, but it doesn't actually tell the journey, right? Michael Jordan was, uh, you know, one of the most phenomenal basketball players. I, I'm a big Michael Jordan fan, and uh, he's who all the other ones want to be. Um, so I have a picture of Michael Jordan. Okay, so this is, you know, hashtag best life Michael, right? That's that. But what it doesn't tell you is that Way back over here, he actually didn't even make his first basketball team. It doesn't tell you about the hours and the years of practice and trying and staying later than everybody else. When they all went home, he's still shooting. It doesn't tell you all that. You just see him flying like a freaking amazing human. Right? You don't see that. And then for us, you know, when we were the first day in this beautiful building, this beautiful cathedral, five years ago, I think we have an image of that. So that actually was something on social media, you know, hashtag best life. So there we are, the bottom left image, you know, that's this room packed. And then because we had fewer services than we do now, then we actually had in the underground, we had people in there and then crowds outside. And, and then there's a picture, I think, of Philip and I, you know, on the first day. And amazing, hashtag, look how cute we look, honey. And uh, amazing. But what that doesn't tell you is, uh, at this point, the 30-year journey of us getting there. It doesn't tell you that we met in a home Bible study, and then we moved to an elementary school, which was a bad idea, and then we ended up going back to a home, which that felt terrible, and then we ended up in a community center and then a theater. It doesn't tell you the years of sweat that we put into actually getting into this building. Right? We just see hashtag best life. And then... Uh, you know, there's an, uh, a conference that we hold called She Rises every year, and a few years ago we had it in the Dolby in the middle of Hollywood, and there's an image of that. So there we are in the Dolby, thousands of women. You know, hashtag there's Holly living her best life, right? But that doesn't tell you about the 20 plus years before that when I started with a handful of women and started learning what it was to lead women. It doesn't talk about all the challenges that we navigated in doing that. You just see that and you think, oh, that Holly, she's just got the hashtag best life. But it doesn't tell you about the journey. There's always a story. And if there was an Instagram moment for King David, it would have been when he was on the throne. You know, David had unified the divided nation of Israel. He had built the military, the treasury. He'd built their national dignity to this unparalleled height. He'd conquered all the surrounding enemies, and he established an empire so powerful that his son Solomon actually never had to fight a war. So that's his Instagram moment. Yay, hashtag David, you're awesome. But let's take a look at how he got there. He's listed in Hebrews 11 as a member of the great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us, these giants who've gone before us. And, and there's so much that could be taught about David that dozens and dozens of books have been written about him. So I, I certainly can't give the whole journey, but I'm going to pull out a few highlights, some lessons that we can learn from David as we're on our way to best life. 
Acts 13, 22, it says, God testified concerning him, speaking of David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And he'll do everything I want him to do. A man after my own heart. Man, isn't that what we would love to have written about us? Holly, a girl after my own heart. You know, Clayton, a man after my own heart. Christina, a woman after my own heart. Dallas, a kid after my own heart. Right, that's what we would love to have written about us. Well, at this point in the history of this nation, nation of Israel, the people of God wanted a king. Up to now, they had been led by God through the prophets. But all the other pagan nations around them had kings. And so they said, we want to be like everybody else, which will be another message. And so Saul was chosen. Saul was chosen, but ultimately Saul's rebellion against God caused him to lose the kingdom. And so now God told Samuel to go anoint one of the sons of a man named Jesse to be the new king. Now, Jesse had eight sons. And when Samuel came, he paraded seven of these sons in front of Samuel, thinking surely these, one of these tall, good-looking men is the one God is looking for. But no. And so God told Samuel, uh, it's none of these. So Samuel looked at Jesse and said, well, wait a minute, do you have any other sons? And Jesse went, well, I mean, there's the youngest one. He's out in the field with the sheep, you know, smelly sheep. He's out there. And Samuel said, bring him in. So brought David, this teenage boy, in. And God said, this is the one. And so Samuel anoints David with oil and declares that he will be the next king. So, of course, the current king Saul kindly moves out of the way and David goes immediately from being a teenage shepherd to king over God's kingdom, from teen to king. Uh, no, that is not what happened. Now begins the 20 plus years of training so that David would be prepared to actually rule God's people. So the newly anointed David, he does not head to the king's court and demand his place. He went back to his father's sheep, and he just kept doing ordinary things. How about us? Right, maybe we have a picture, or maybe we don't, of what God has for us. So are there some ordinary things that we need to be doing? Maybe we should just try showing up at time on work. See, we want the big life, and God says, can you show up on time three days in a row? Or maybe it's keeping your car clean, or paying your bills, or spending time with your kids, or even at church. Maybe it's serving somewhere. Maybe it's being on a team, going to growth track, coming to Wednesday nights and being part of a grow group. See, we want the big thing, and God says, can you do the ordinary things? 1 Corinthians 15, 46 says, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. Soon, David would face Goliath, which is another Instagram moment. But he didn't know that, so he just kept doing what was in his hand to do. He didn't get distracted by the picture that he would ultimately be king. He didn't go print cards that said, hey, David, king. He didn't do that. He went back to the field. He went back to caring for the sheep. He did the natural and dirty work of tending sheep. And it's in the field with the sheep that he got very comfortable with his slingshot. And eventually, he got really good at it. And one time, in order to protect the sheep, 
He had to kill a lion with that slingshot, and he had to kill a bear. Now, he didn't know that these tools would ultimately help him beat an even bigger enemy. He was just faithful with what was in his hand. And see, for us, there are all kinds of lions and bears that we have to kill. Maybe it's something from your past. Or maybe it's fear of man, or maybe there's some emotional hurts, or anger issues, or the need for approval. You will one day face your own Goliath, and defeating that giant will require that we defeat the smaller ones. And it's in the field that David learned to do that. It's also in the field where David learned to worship. It's where his relationship with God was birthed. It's where he learned the secret place that he writes about in Psalm 91. It's where he, and so we, learn about surrender. It's in the field where no one is around and no one can see that we learn what it means to deny ourselves. It's in the field where we learn to control our own soul. If the enemy is met and conquered in private, then we will not be defeated in public. Let me say that again. If the enemy is met and conquered in private, we will not be defeated in public. See, God's way is to teach in secret the soul of the person he has decided will serve him in public. But all of that happens in secret places, in the field. One day, David's father asked David to take some food to his brothers who were in the army and were on the front lines of this war they were having with the Philistines. And what if David had not yielded to his father's request to take some sandwiches to his brothers? What if he had said something like, I just don't feel like it, Dad. They should have taken their own food. I am not responsible for them. I mean, what if he had said something like that? Something that would have been normal, right, for a teenage boy to say. I think if he had, I think if he'd said that, if he hadn't yielded to his father's request, then he would have missed his moment. And Goliath was his moment. He, if he hadn't gone to the front lines, he wouldn't have seen the giant taunting the army of God. I think God orchestrated the whole thing. 1 Samuel 17 tells the story, and it's an amazing one. David goes to his brothers, and when he does, he hears it, the enemy. He hears this giant, this nine-foot-nine-inch-tall nine giant taunting God's army. And no one, no one was doing anything. No one, including King Saul, was doing anything. Saul did nothing. Jonathan, his son, did nothing. Abner, the captain of the army, was doing nothing. For 40 days, Goliath was mocking God and mocking the people of God and mocking the army every morning and every night. Interesting the name Goliath actually comes from a word meaning to expose, to exile. Any WWE fans in the room? Elise, you've been there, right? Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> Just called her out right now. Okay, if he was in the WWE, if Goliath, his name would have been Banisher, Rejector. <laughs> right? So 40 days. This giant, Goliath, is harassing and tormenting the army of God. Interesting, 40. 40 is the number of testing. 
40 years, children of Israel were in the desert. 40 days, it rained on Noah's ark. 40 days, Jesus was tempted and tested in the wilderness. So the army's being tested for 40 days, and they're failing. So David, David could not stand that this giant could not stand what all he was saying about God and his people, and he realized that his nation was at risk. So he decided to do something about it. This young teenage boy, he grabs his slingshot, which I'm sure was very handy. That's what he knew. And he picks up five stones. Five. Not three. Not one. Not six. He picks up five. Why? Well, some people say because Goliath had four brothers. Yeah, but we're not sure that David knew that. So why did he pick up five stones? Well, The Hebrew language is, as we learned last week from Philip, is alphanumeric, which means that numbers can be written with letters. The number five is written with the letter H, or they would say hey. Everybody say hey. Look at you. We're, We're practically Hebrew. And that is the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And some scholars say that hey is connected to the divine breath of God, which releases his power and potential. So let's take a look at where this has already happened. See, God promised Abram and Sarai that they would have a child, but years went by. So as a sign that God was going to do what he said he would do, he changed their name. Genesis 17, God says, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be called the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I made you a father of many nations. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her, and you will surely get a son by her. I will bless her. She'll, she'll be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. So the Lord changed Abram's name from, a, from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. The one letter difference between their old names and their new names is the letter H, or Chay. See, the Lord added this letter to their names because it represents his creative power to do the impossible. And David needed the Chay, the divine empowerment of God's spirit if he was gonna obtain victory and overcome the impossible. So when he picked up those stones, it was more than a rock, it was the power of God to do the impossible. And David, the Bible tells us that David ran toward Goliath, this nine feet, nine inch tall, wearing 100 pounds of armor, including a helmet, by the way. And David said this, he said to that Philistine, you come against me with the sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. In the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Go David. (laughs) So as Goliath is advancing toward him, David uses his slingshot to hurl a rock at the giant's face. And when he hurled that rock, it was the power of God in action. And Goliath dies. Now the miracle, the miracle of David and Goliath is not just that a rock hit him. It was that David had such an intimate relationship with God that he knew, that he knew, he knew who his God was so that he knew when he picked up that rock, it was not coming in his strength, he was coming with the breath and the power of Almighty God. He knew that the God who had helped him rescue a sheep in the field would certainly help him rescue his nation. 
So I started thinking, how silly of me to think that I would achieve any worthwhile victory without a genuine and intimate relationship with God. So many of us think that our gifts and our strengths will take us where we want to go. Now, they might help us get the lion and the bear, but they won't help us get Goliath. So the end result of this was a tremendous victory for the children of Israel. And then there was this really interesting little verse. At the end of 1 Samuel 17, it says, verse 54 says, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in the tent. David took the head of the Philistine. So what he did after he knocked him out with the rock, then he cut off his head. So now he's holding this bloody head. I was actually thinking about going to like a Halloween store and getting one and doing that, but it was just too gross. I couldn't handle it. But that's what he did. Right? He took this head, and then it says he, he brought it to Jerusalem. Why? See, Jerusalem was five miles from where he killed Goliath. So David, this teenage boy, is carrying the head of the giant for five miles, and he walks to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is certainly the place that the Israelites wanted to occupy. So much of their history was there. And maybe in David's heart, he knew that one day the city would be his. And, spoiler alert, it would be his. That's his Instagram moment. But at this point, it wasn't. At this point, the Jebusites were another enemy. They occupied that city. So why was David taking the head of the giant there? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it was a declaration. David standing outside the walls and the enemy's up there and they're probably laughing at him, looking at this teenage kid, but David is holding up the head of Goliath and he says, this is Goliath, the champion of Gath, who I found in the Valley of Elah, and I cut off his head. He doesn't belong here in this land, so I cut off his head. This is a testimony of what my God has done for me and I hold up my testimony and I stake my claim because someday I'm coming to take off your head and I will possess this city. And I'm sure that they were laughing at him. Laughing at this kid who was boasting about taking that which Joshua couldn't take and Caleb couldn't take and Saul couldn't take. So let me ask you, what has God promised you? How many of you in this room, by a show of hands, have experienced some sort of touch, some sort of miracle from God? Right, a lot of us. Then maybe, Maybe you need to take the head of the giant you defeated and hold it up to the enemy in front of you. You know, maybe, maybe you're facing a giant in a family relationship, some kind of breakdown. Well, take the head of the giant you have defeated, like maybe debt, and use that as your confidence. It's like, I defeated debt, and in the name of Almighty God, I'll defeat you too. Right? Your challenge is more important than the challenger. See, getting rid of Goliath wasn't their biggest problem. Goliath was big, but that wasn't their biggest problem. Their biggest problem was the fear within themselves. Every giant 
Every crisis introduces a person to himself. A crisis doesn't make or break us. It simply shows us who we already are. And see, they didn't know who they were. Goliath just gave an edge to the issue. For 40 days, Goliath was demoralizing Israel's army. And this was David's disbelief. He couldn't believe that they listened to this guy for 40 days. And that's the way it is with giants of, like, fear and worry. They don't just come once. They come morning and evening, day after day, relentlessly trying to intimidate. They come in the form of a person or a pressure or a worry, some kind of fear that just hammers on your heart every morning and every night, day in and day out. So what intimidates you? This is your Goliath, and the victory belongs to the Lord, and it's time for us to take a stand. See, I think integrity, wholeness demands it. And then there are also some challenges in your life and mine, some challenges that need to be addressed, some giants that need to be addressed. And these challenges may not be as obvious as David's challenge over Goliath, but nevertheless, the battle rages, and it rages in a number of places. The battle rages at work. You know, do you repair cars? Do you install electrical wiring? Do you work with numbers? Are you a barista? Are you a student trying to earn a good grade? Do you sell clothes? Do you own your own business? Every occupation has its challenge and shortcuts and, and its integrity that steadies us on the course. So the battle rages at home and in our hearts. And again, some of your giants may not be as sensational as the David Goliath story, but believe me, they're equally as important when it comes to your personal victory. No one may be there to cheer for you when you record the numbers right on the spreadsheet despite what your boss told you to do. No one may be there to pat you on the back when you take the extra hour to install the right part rather than putting the old part back on and passing it off to the customer as a quality job. No one may see when you don't send that stinging email. But somewhere, there is a David, and he's on his feet applauding the giant slayers. He's applauding you as you defeat your own personal giants. So after David defeated the giant, then King Saul's like, whoa, okay. And then he offers his daughter as a reward to David. So now David's married. And he's living in the palace. And he has a gift with music, and so he's playing music, which calms the really broken soul of King Saul. Well, soon Saul becomes jealous of David, D jealous of his popularity. He's, he knew that God's hand was on him. And so he starts to threaten him and harass him and annoy him. Do you have a Saul in your life? Right? Is there somebody who irritates you and just kind of rubs you the wrong way and bothers you? Well, I'd like to suggest God knows all about it. And perhaps that person is a part of his plan as he is molding you and forming you to become your best life. So Saul, Saul fully was losing his mind, and he even tried to kill David. So David has to flee. He runs away, 
And Saul's army is chasing him. And then David doesn't even ask God what to do, so, which was a, a serious mistake. And so David ends up and has to hide in enemy territory. And he hides in enemy territory. And in order to not be killed by the enemies amongst whose territory he's hiding, he pretends to be crazy. And so he starts drooling and saying ridiculous things. And then he finds himself in a cave. So when David arrives at the cave, he's lost his wife, he's lost his friends, he's lost his job, he's lost his feeling of self-worth, he's lost his income, he's lost his dreams, he's lost his confidence. He's probably at an all-time low. And he th he's thinking, I imagine, that this is the furthest. Further, he couldn't even imagine himself being here. See, God had said he would be king. Yeah, right. He's homeless and living in a cave with an army tracking him down to kill him. And so David is wrestling with all of that. You know, the cave, the cave is where people find themselves when all of their life supports, all of the things they relied on, all of their dreams are stripped away. Caves are where we find ourselves when what we had thought we were going to do, the great things we thought we were going to do, whether it's to have a wonderful family or to boldly go where no one has ever gone before, doesn't actually work out the way we planned. And so we find ourselves in a cave. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe everything that you could count on has been stripped away. And you find yourself in this cave. David was there, another place where God was shaping him and forming him. A.W. Tozer, who's a great theologian, he said this. He said, God never uses anyone greatly until he tests them deeply. You want to be used greatly by God? Well, buckle your seatbelt. Because it was here, in this place of pain and uncertainty, that David had the chance to respond to all that was going on around him. And this is what blows my mind. In this place of suffering and pain, David wrote three psalms, songs, book of psalms, while he's in this cave. Psalm 34, 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Ah, uh, I just don't know if I could do that. Right, everything's been taken away from me. It feels like the God who told me about this big life I was gonna live, it's like, where are you? But his response isn't to get angry or shake his fists, his response is, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. So I'd like to suggest, in fact, why don't we all just say that together right now? We're gonna say that one together. One, two, three. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Instead of the complaining continually in your mouth or the boasting instead of the fear continually being in your mouth, oh, his praises continually in our mouth. And they wrote another one while he was in the cave, Psalm 57.1. I love it. Right before the psalm, they give this little direction. I don't know if David wrote this direction or the people transcribing did, but this is what they wrote. For the director of music, when you're going to do this psalm, do it to the tune of Do Not Destroy. That must have been a hit, like back there a couple thousand years ago, you know, as 
was it. And he says this, Psalm 57, 1, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. And then Psalm 142, another one he wrote in the cave, says, I cry aloud to the Lord, I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. And something amazing starts to happen. People start joining themselves to him. First Samuel 22, it says, so David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, and that's where I'm talking about right now. It says, and when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him, which that's interesting. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Everyone who was in distress, in debt, and discontented. Okay, if I was going to pick people to come help me up, those three, those wouldn't have even made the list. So those people came to the cave. Why? Maybe because they knew that they would find sympathy and not criticism. See, David was the last person in the world who would find fault with them. Broken men don't throw stones at other broken men. And these people, these people were drawn to David because they saw someone who did not lose his faith when he had every reason in the world to do so. They saw a faith that came alive in trouble, not one that disappeared in the middle of the hardship. They came for acceptance, they came for inspiration, they came for genuine leadership. And these men ultimately became his mighty men of valor whose exploits are legendary. These are the group of people who would eventually help him take Jerusalem and become king over a unified nation. All because they found a guy who loved God even in the worst time of his life. It was in this cave where David was being formed. Also in this cave, he had a chance to kill Saul. And man, that would have been a shortcut to the throne. Get rid of him. At this time, Saul was hunting David to kill him and had 3,000 troops with him. In 1 Samuel 24, beginning verse 3, it says, At the place where the road passes some sheepfold, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. You figure that out. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you. I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he'd cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one for the Lord himself has chosen him. So Saul restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. It said David's conscience began bothering him. One of my greatest fears would be that I would ever get to a place where my conscience doesn't bother me, where I can go against what God would say and I'd feel nothing bad about it. If your conscience ever pricks you, rejoice in that because that means God is directing you. You don't ever want to get to a place where you don't feel bad about something. And actually, in the cave, David twice had the opportunity to kill Saul. This happened twice. People offered to kill Saul for him, and David said, don't touch him. 
David resolved that he would not seek vengeance. Now, had Saul been wrong? Yes, he was crazy wrong. Was it David's job to make it right? No. That was God's job, and David realized it. So how about us? When someone is trying to do us wrong, do we try to take them out? Maybe not with an arrow, but how about with our words? Do we post things on social media, you know, that passive-aggressive thing we can do? Do we tell others things about them kind of in this roundabout way that would tarnish their reputation? I've been guilty of this. See, killing Saul would have been David's shortcut to the throne. And I'd like to suggest that along our journey, there will be paths that seem easier, shortcuts we can take, whether it's telling that little lie because the truth is harder, skimming a little off the top of that account because that would be a quick way to reduce debt. The strategy of the enemy is a shortcut. Jesus was offered a shortcut in the wilderness and on the cross, and he said no. And we're here because he did. Now at this time, the nation was divided into two. It was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Judah and Israel. And Hebron was a city in Judah. And the tribes of Judah got together in Hebron, and they said, we want to make David king over Judah. So now David is actually king over a partial nation. At this time, God said no to the whole nation, to his ability to rule the whole thing. Now David had the ability, but God said no. And you know what? He was seemingly content. He knew that this wasn't the whole kingdom. He knew that this was just a partial promise. So I'm just wondering, can we be content with part of the vision? I mean, maybe now you're an assistant to someone, but in your heart is your own company. Can you be content there trusting God with the bigger? Well, after seven and a half years of partial rule, God has gotten rid of the obstacles and David becomes king over Judah and Israel a united, a unified nation. And he goes to Jerusalem, which the Bible referred to as Zion. He goes to Zion, the place that had been occupied by the enemy, the place where he had once shown Goliath's head. And this time God says, the city is yours. And so David conquers the city. Only this time, he did not do it alone. See, up to now, his journey had primarily been an individual one. But the taking of Jerusalem is a corporate battle. You will never achieve best life now by yourself. There will be parts of this journey in the secret places that we will do alone. But if we're ever gonna reach there, it will always be in company of other people, always. So now David and his army, they take the city and he's now king over a unified nation 22 years after Samuel had poured that oil on his head. And now his real work begins. He expanded the territory from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. He established trade routes. He brought more wealth than they'd ever seen before. He unified a nation. He brought back the Ark of the Covenant, which is declaring spiritual leadership. But you know the thing about David is his journey was not a perfect one. He made almost as many mistakes as he had victories. But David, 
with every failure, he humbled himself before God and he got back up and he kept going. Unlike King Saul before him, who actually blamed people for his failures or denied his failures, David did not. Now, right after David had had his big Instagram moment, unified a nation, brought the wealth, conquered territories, after he'd done all that, there was a moment, a season, when he forgot how kings should behave. And he let his passions rule him. And that's when he had his affair with Bathsheba. And in order to cover it up, he has to kill Bathsheba's husband. And then when the prophet comes to him and exposes him, challenges him, David doesn't run away from it. Ultimately, he falls on his knees and he writes Psalm 51, which is the psalm of repentance. It's brokenhearted sorrow and, and it included phrases like, against you, O God, have I sinned. Have mercy on me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't pray, create in me a clean heart, oh God, because I know what I'm capable of. I know the mistakes I can make. I know the thoughts that can go dark. And I create in me a clean heart, oh God. And that's the posture that David had. Which is why God says, he's a man after my own heart. Not a perfect man, but a man after my own heart. Now, the main point of every Old Testament narrative, every Old Testament story, is to show us what God was doing throughout history to save his people. Jesus is the main hero of the entire Bible. Everything in the Old Testament ultimately connects us to Jesus, points to the coming Jesus. And we see that in a very clear way in this story. In his battle against Goliath, David said, I come at you in the name of the Lord. Now that's expression, it was only used one other time in the Old Testament, and that's in Psalm 118. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, blessed is God's Savior who comes in the name of the Lord to save and to his people and defeat the enemy. Now this psalm is actually spoken as Jesus walked into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Matthew 21. It says, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, because Jesus is in the lineage of David. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. David said to Goliath in that valley of Eli, I come at you in the name of the Lord. And he was pointing ultimately to his greater son, Jesus, who would come in the name of the Lord. David defeated Goliath. David's greater son, Jesus, defeated Satan on the cross at Calvary. David represented the people of Israel when he defeated Goliath. Jesus represents all of us when he defeated Satan. David's victory over Goliath is a parallel of Jesus' victory over Satan. So let me just ask you, what is the giant that you need to take out with your stone? Is it fear? Is it lack? Is it depression? There is no enemy who is greater than the name of Jesus. First John 3.8 tells us why Jesus came. First John 3.8 says, but the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. 
every Goliath in your life, Jesus came to destroy. Every chain, every addiction, every fear, everything that would torment you, Jesus came to defeat. So when you pick up your five stones, when you pick up your five stones, it is not your stone that takes out your enemy. It is the breath and the power of Almighty God. So I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what giant's in front of you, but if you're alive on planet Earth, you got one. But I just want to encourage you, you're not in this fight on your own. You get to come in the name of Almighty God, whose name is above every name. I'm going to pray right now. Father, I thank you for the men and women in this room. And I know that many of us in here, we are facing some giants. We're facing some enemies, some ugly, disgusting enemies who are tormenting. And I thank you, God, that David pointed the way to Jesus. And we get to come against that enemy in the name of Jesus. And so right now, I come against every enemy that is attacking your people today. The enemy of fear, I destroy you in Jesus' name. Lack, I destroy you in Jesus' name. Debt, you are destroyed in the name of Jesus by the very power and breath of Almighty God. Addictions broken in the name of Jesus. I thank you, Father, for freedom for your people. Freedom, freedom. Freedom. 